Our next amazing guest is Sarah Holmes from Mildura, Victoria. And Sarah is a zoologist and a field ecologist. But not only that, she runs and owns EnviroEDU, which is an educational wildlife business where she gets to deliver, along with her husband, Alex, educational wildlife talks to schools, kindies, daycares, and also private parties at home. So what Sarah is going to talk to you about today is quals. And I'm sure you're asking right now, what even is a qual? And most people have no idea, even Australians. So stay tuned because she is also going to introduce us to her beautiful Quinn, who is a spotted tail qual. So you will want to check that out on our YouTube channel, Australian Wildlife Education, where you get to see firsthand exactly what a spotted tail qual looks like. But Sarah is going to chat to us about the importance of these carnivorous marsupial mammals to our environment, why they are endangered, and also what role they play within the environment. So stay tuned, get your cup of tea ready, because you're going to enjoy the following Wild Chat. Have you ever wondered how a kangaroo can live in a tree? What about crocodiles and how they can stay underwater for hours at a time and not be seen? Maybe what keeps you up at night is your thoughts of how box jellyfish can be the most venomous animal in the whole world towards humans? Or is it your curiosity of what really goes on inside that caterpillar cocoon for a magnificent stunning butterfly to emerge? Well, don't worry, as I have all your questions answered and much, much more with our following wild chats, I am going to bring you the most amazing guests. Hey everyone, my name is Jodie Creek and I'm a wildlife educator and huge advocate for Australian animals and of course their habitats and ecosystems as well. But what I'm truly passionate about is bringing you information that you need to connect with the natural world. So someone once said to me that I may not be able to change the world, but I can change the world around me. So let's hope that we can inspire you to make change at home and therefore together we do actually change the world. So get that cup of tea ready and enjoy the following wild chats. Well, good afternoon. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Excellent, good, good. Thanks for joining me. All right. Well, I suppose I would love to introduce you. feels really weird actually that we're not streaming it live because I'm not seeing everyone say hello. But I'm sure there's going to be lots of comments from everyone in our group once they see your interview. I can't wait. But first of all, everyone, hello. Happy Friday. I have an amazing guest with me today and I'm so excited because during this time or over the last couple of months, I've really got to get to know a lot of other wildlife educators out there in Australia. And here I have with me today is Sarah from Victoria and you are from Enviro. Is, do you say Enviro EDU? Yes, yes, I do. Spot on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. well done. I, I absolutely love that name, by the way. I love it. Oh, thank it you. is so good. So, <laughs> so, Sarah, before we get into what is a koal, I would actually love for you to share who you are, a bit of your background, where are you from, for starters, where in Australia are you situated, and then also tell us a bit about what you do, because I just love sharing. There's so many of us around Australia, but I think what you do is so important, so please share with us. Oh, thanks, Jodie. Well, hi, everyone. Um, As Jodie introduced, my name's Sarah Holmes. I'm a zoologist that's based in Mildura. And for those of you up north, Mildura is in the very northwestern corner of Victoria. So we're kind of a little tri-state area. We're right in the northwest corner of Victoria, 
but we're right on the border with New South Wales and South Australia is just over an hour away. So we're in this amazing little semi-arid environment, kind of, we call it the gateway to the outback, really. So we're this little tropical oasis in, uh, in the middle of the desert, so to speak. My background, I'm a zoologist here, as I said, and for many years actually worked out in the field as a zoologist and then kind of broadened more into floodplain ecology. So I did a lot of work with environmental watering out on our floodplain and wetland areas that obviously in this day and age, climate change has been a really big factor. So I did a lot of work in sort of conservation of our wetland and floodplain areas. But my passion's always been native Australian animals and I married another zoologist and so it kind of just was <laughs> natural that uh, we started our own little environmental education business in Borough up here in Mildura and we've been really, really blessed. All our local schools and kinders have really supported us and so now we visit all our local schools, kinders and we do community events and bring our wildlife into the classroom and teach people about local conservation, which is amazing. fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. How can we not love our job? I mean, really. I do pinch pinch myself every day, to be honest, when people come up and say, oh, you just get to have so much fun. And and look, we do, don't we? Like, how good is it? We get to work with kids, we get to work with adults, and we get to work with animals. So I feel very, very blessed. Absolutely. And we get to keep learning every single day, Um, as we learned this morning between you and me with our messages. Absolutely. No, it is. It's fantastic. I think, I don't think you can ever know everything. Like you just, there's new information coming in all the time about our beautiful wildlife. And I love it. The more I can absorb. And as you said, getting to know and meet all the educators around as we have done in these times where we haven't been able to get out into the classrooms and I guess do what we normally do. It has just been so magical to actually be able to meet people and learn. And you know, learn about animals that we may not each have in our own little individual mini zoos. And I've just absolutely relished those moments of, you know, meeting you guys and and getting to know more about what you do and and the work you guys do and the animals that you work with every day. So it's been really lovely. I know. And I'm so excited to meet the animal today that I don't have in my zoo, but you do. And how amazing that we've got technology right at our fingertips. So today we can learn more about quolls and uh, quolls are one of those animals that people kind of go oh sorry what 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 did you say and you're like it's a quoll you're like "Mm, I actually don't know what that is and there's so many animals around the world but even in Australia like Australia you come across so many people who don't know what's uh, like I've got a rufous betong and they're like a "Mm, what Mm?" A, a, a baton what a baton <laughs> like and, and so I'm so excited about today because I don't have a qual so I am going to hand it over to you Sarah to tell us a bit about what is a qual and I know that you've got some amazing things that you're going to share with us so I am going to put it on your view and you can share your screen when you're ready to tell okay, us perfect. and I can't Excellent. wait to meet him as well Awesome. Well, maybe what I thought I'd do is just give a little overview to start with about what is a quoll because, Jodie, you nailed it. So many people 
have never heard of a quoll and certainly wouldn't have been lucky enough to see one in the wild. And there's lots of reasons why they're not a commonly encountered species. And I think the number one thing is that quoll around Australia, we've, we're really lucky we've got four species of quoll in Australia. There's actually six species of quoll all up. Two, two of those actually live in Papua New Guinea. But the four species within Australia have all declined substantially. Europeans came to Australia. So, and we'll talk a little bit as we go along as to why numbers have declined. But what I thought we might do before I actually introduce our beautiful little man for you today is we'll actually just put up a little snapshot of the four different species of quoll. And we'll talk a little bit about the defining features of a quoll what enables us to identify a quoll as a quoll. And we'll talk a little bit about the differences between the four species without getting too, you know, into too much detail. But I'm just going to quickly share a little screen with you that gives us a snapshot. And I just wanted to pay tribute. This isn't, I've just kind of grabbed bits, but this has actually come from the Rewildling, I think that's how you pronounce it, Facebook page. They do a lot of work with reintroductions of particularly Eastern quoll. But this I just felt was a lovely little snapshot and I'll just pop it onto a larger view there. Has that come up okay? Yeah, if you just put there it onto a larger view, then it will come through. Hopefully yep, that comes up okay. Yeah. So the four species of coal that we have in Australia, obviously today I'm going to introduce Quinn, my spotted tail coal. He's the largest of the four species. And in fact, spotted tail coal around 50% larger than the other three species. So if we start at the top, we've got the northern quoll. They're the smallest of our four species. And these guys, you can see on the map what was the former range of the northern quoll. It covered pretty much right across the top area from the Pilbara in WA right across into southern Queensland. And you can see just how much their range has declined since Europeans settled into Australia. Wow, um, that, now it is huge, isn't it? When you look at when you get to see a map like that, it really puts it into perspective just what that range decline has been and at what sort of scale. And they're now really only known, I believe, from about six different population areas around the northern parts of Australia. So these guys, they all have quite similar characteristics in some respects, but then they're quite different in terms of size overall. So the northern quoll, the males being the larger of the female male sort of demographic the males only get to just under a kilo so these guys compared to a spotted tail quoll where the male can get up to a massive seven kilos so huge difference in size mm. if we look at the eastern quoll so these guys have also declined in range significantly and they're now actually extinct on the mainland. So they're only in relatively okay numbers in Tasmania, but in saying that they're still considered endangered at a national level. They have been reintroduced into Boodoree National Park down in southeastern New South Wales. Oh. And it has been, I think, relatively successful. So those animals that were reintroduced have actually successfully bred but there have also been issues with those reintroduced animals being taken by feral predators. They have been rude kills. So there has still been issues with those reintroductions. If we look down at the Western quoll, now what's really interesting about quolls is that once upon a time, a species of quoll would have been found in every state hmm. on mainland Australia at one point in time. Now, if you look at that 
that range that and just how much those ranges have reduced if you look at the western quoll these guys were once in every mainland state of australia they're now only confined to that very southwestern corner of wa which is massive so for us locally in mildura the western quoll would have once upon a time been our local species of quoll and you have a look where we are in the northwest corner of australia and look at just that reduction in range of that particular animal it's absolutely phenomenal and really pretty disturbing to be honest mm, absolutely um, yeah and then the spotted tail quoll so the western quoll is our second largest quoll species in australia and as i said the spotted tail quoll which is around 50 percent larger than the other three species and you can see the spotted tail quoll are actually found still up in the very northern parts of Queensland and then down into the southern parts of Queensland, northern New South Wales and down along the coastal areas of Victoria. And numbers are still average in Tasmania. I think, to be honest, Tassie are doing the best at maintaining populations of both their eastern and spot-tailed quoll. And I think the big factor there when we're looking at why have all these species declined at such a phenomenal rate is what's causing the decline. Habitat loss, habitat fragmentation and predation by feral predators are the, the really big risk factors, not only to quoll. I mean, if we put it in perspective, you look at what's threatening the vast majority of Australia's mammal species and so many of our small to mid-sized mammals have either completely gone extinct or reduced to such a level and it's all really been feral predators and loss and fragmentation of their habitat that are the key factors. Mm. So it's and possibly just, not that surprising really, is it, that the same no. thing happening to our quoll. And you just painted that picture uh, when you said that it was the eastern quoll was reintroduced into that part of New South Wales. Was it the eastern that you mentioned? Yes, that's correct. So, so here we are, we're reintroducing into areas of where they formerly were. However, we haven't fixed the actual issue as to why they became endangered or extinct on the mainland in the first place. And so here we are, we're trying to do the right things and let's put them back and let's try again. But we're not if anything, we're worse than what we were. We're not actually solving the issue as to why our animals are becoming endangered. Um, it's, it's exactly right. And the other species that's been successfully reintroduced into its former range is the western quoll. So quite a bit of work has been done over a number of years at reintroducing the western quoll into the Flinders ranges. And there's been numerous sightings of western quoll now into Wilpina Pound, which is kind of the common campground of the Flinders ranges. So, I mean, it's a wonderful good news story, but as you said, when we're not really addressing the key issues at stake, and in a lot of respects, if you look at the habitat loss and habitat fragmentation as a threat, you look where the vast majority of our population of Australia live, mm -hmm. it's on the East Coast. So, you know, when you're wiping huge chunks of prime habitat from a lot of our native Australian animals, and it's not just mammals, obviously, it, you know, it moves into reptiles and birds, you know, it's the whole range of our fauna, you know, it's really no real surprise that the numbers of so many of these animals are declining at such an alarming rate. You know, when our population's increasing and we're encroaching continually into those necessity or habitats that these animals are relying on so heavily 
it's disturbing really. Yeah, it doesn't really stand a chance. No, I know. And here we are educating children and we're hoping that what we can get across is how they can play a part in trying to conserve what, what we still have left. Um, and then maybe they, you know, the students and the kids that we're talking to can be a part of not reintroducing species as such, but stopping that endangerment of other animals because Absolutely. they're going to be going out and they're going to be making different choices because we're arming them with the education that they need to understand. So exactly like what you just said with the Eastern quail, we haven't solved the actual issue. So we can't put an animal back in thinking that it's going to be okay if as a whole, we're not solving the bigger issue. But hopefully, Absolutely. fingers crossed, I'm completely wrong. But then oh, you've got... I know. I mean, it's yeah. lovely that they, it has been successful in the sense that they have been able to breed. So, you know, there's little glimmers of hope, mm-hmm. I think. But at the end yeah. of the day, we need to educate our broader community on things like feral predators. And even, unfortunately, as much as, you know, cats are a beautiful animal in their own right... Do they belong in Australia? And I'm not going to open a whole new bag of worms here, but the way we manage some of our domestic animals that unfortunately prey really strongly and are competitors to a lot of our carnivorous marsupials like our quoll, you know, it puts a lot of stress and a lot of strain on a lot of our um, native Australian animals. Yeah, absolutely. It's educating, educating the community about how best to live in an environment or coexist, I guess, in an environment with our native Australian animals. Yeah, definitely. You know, us humans, we we love animals, we love wildlife, and that's why we get cats and, and dogs and so forth. But it is also about arming ourselves with the education in regards to if you have a cat, that is beautiful. But what are you going to do in regards to keeping your community safe from that particular animal being out at nighttime or certain parts of the day and then taking our, yes, our native wildlife? So I think I think it's important that it is brought up, Sarah, and it is a can of worms that we could we could open up. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was awesome. No, that's okay. I'll take that one off. Mm. No, well, shall we meet our little friend? Oh yes, please. <laughs> So, guys, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here today. I'm very, very grateful, and thank you very much, Jodie, for inviting me on today. So, as you know, we've, we've mentioned I do have, I'm very lucky to have a little conservation ambassador in Quinn. He's our spotted tail quoll. Quinn came to us in November, and he was, I believe, four weeks weaned from mum. So, we were really lucky we got him at a very young age, and the breeder that we got him from set up a really strong foundation for us, which we're very, very grateful for, in that he did a lot of handling whilst they were young. So, in a really appropriate sense, he was able, his, the mum and dad of Quinn were hand-raised animals themselves and were very used to the breeder. So he was in a really fortunate position where he was able to handle the young at a, you know, at a really young age so that when Quinn came to us weaned from mum, he wasn't frightened of the human hand. So we had that strong foundation to work with him right from the word go. Obviously, I think quolls have a bit of a, I won't say a bad name. I, I've, I've heard a few funny names for quolls. Obviously, the proper common name is a spotted tail quoll, but they're also known as a tiger quoll. And I think I've heard Tim Faulkner call them the uh, baby-faced assassin. And it's probably nailed it really because these guys have the most gorgeously cute face but as Steve Backshall would say they are deadly so these guys are the second largest carnivorous marsupial in the world so 
you know, they're big, they're powerful, they've got heads on them that are just huge compared to the size of their body, massive, big, I've heard them refer to saber-like canines. So, you know, they've adapted and evolved to be just incredibly strong, powerful predators out in the wild. So, you know, as someone that hadn't worked with Paul previously, we had to, it was, it's been a big learning curve for us and an amazing learning curve. And that build up in trust between Quinn and myself has just been absolutely magic. So I'd like to introduce him to you. So at the moment, Quinn, they're a nocturnal marsupial. So nocturnal obviously being that they sleep most of the time during the day. Now, spotted tail quoll and northern quoll are known to actually bask and come out and forage occasionally during the day. And I'm seeing that more and more at the moment because now that we're coming into the cooler months, Spotted tail quoll actually breed from April through to July. And we've noticed Quinn's not quite 12 months old, but he's on the prowl. He's out looking for a lady friend. And so we're finding in terms of his behavioural changes during the day, he is actually out lying basking out in the sun pretty much most of the day. So it's been really interesting for us to see those behavioural differences during the different seasons. So, without further ado, he's curled up at the moment inside his, oh, he's going to get really active. I'm just going to spin him around so that I can hopefully show you on the webcam what he looks like. I'm just going to bring him, bring it down. So, this is Quinn all snuggled up inside his little pouch. I will actually get him out in a little bit so people can see. But a few little features that I guess I was really keen to show everyone. So they're called a spotted tail quoll. It's a really descriptive way of saying they have spots all the way down their tail. And that's a one way of telling the different species apart because the spotted tail quoll is the only species of the four in Australia that have those spots going right down the tail and if I can kind of show you a little bit more of his body they have these incredible white different shaped and and different size spots all the way down their body and then you can see right down hopefully into his tail it's spotted all the way down right down to the tip so really amazing I guess it is an adaptation having these spots. So it's a really good hunting mechanism for nocturnal predators to have this disruptive camouflage, I believe it's called, where it's a broken coloration form. So to you and I now looking at Quinn, you'd be thinking but he would stand out like a sore thumb surely out there in the wild with he's got an amazingly sort of rich, reddy, brown-coloured coat and these really bright, vibrant white spots, like how does that possibly help him to hunt? Well, if you can imagine, if he's out hunting at night time and there's that dappled moonlight coming through sort of dense vegetation, for him prowling and perhaps stalking up on a prey item, those white colour forms actually break the pattern up. And so it actually does make it far more difficult for a prey item whether it be a possum or a you know a bandicoot or whatever it's whatever small mammal species that he's choosing to hunt at the time it actually does make it far more difficult for them to see 
Probably another really good example, I guess, of this sort of camouflage would be a zebra. So the white and black stripes in a zebra actually make it really difficult for lions to be able to spot the the coloration in a big herd of zebra because I've, I think lion are actually colorblind. So if a big herd of zebra are on the move, it's really hard for them to pinpoint just one animal. Kind of similar but different. <laughs> Uh, same, same, so yeah, he's not wow. really doing a hell of a lot for us at the minute, but a couple of little other features of that all quoll have, you can notice those really long whiskers. So again, that helps him to feel where he is in, in the environment when he's out hunting. It's a bit tucked away at the moment, but he's got a really beautiful, well, is that focusing a little pink wet nose? They have an incredible sense of smell. So their eyesight's okay, but their sense of smell is amazing and you just see them out. I mean, I see him prowling around his enclosure every day and at night and his nose is up smelling all the time. They've also got, I really need to show you their feet. Their feet are amazing. Can you, is that kind of focusing on? So this is his hind foot. And they've got quite a long, elongated hind foot quolls, but a really reduced big toe. Can you see that this is his big toe here? It's really quite little. But they've got amazing lines and pads on their feet. And quoll, the different species of quoll actually act differently in the wild. So the northern quoll and the spot-tailed quoll, they actually can be quite arboreal. So having these particular species of quoll have quite defined grooves in their feet that helps them to climb trees. Their front feet, if I can pull his little... <laughs> He's really minding me doing this. So this is his front foot. And you can see just like you and I, five fingers. And these are perfect for him to grab his prey item and hold his food and also to help him climb. And you can notice those extremely sharp claws that help him to grab onto the animal, probably grab onto branches of trees as he's up perhaps hunting for food or going into a hollow, etc. But I think their feet are amazing. Yeah, I'm so surprised at how thick those pads are. Aren't they amazing? Yeah. They're so detailed. I can't really, I'm not sure how clear that's coming in for you guys, but they're just the most amazing little feet. It's incredible. And he's not doing it for me so much today. Sometimes when he's just lying there like that, you can see this random tooth just popping out. But he's probably, he's not really, he hasn't really got it showing. But anyway, yeah, so absolutely beautiful. And I mean, how lucky am I that I've, we've got this amazing animal that's just sitting here letting me have a little <laughs> a oh, play. He's just, he's amazing. Absolutely. He is just gorgeous. Now, you said before about the patterns on him. I just love that you've brought forward that adaptation. And I think that's really important for people or especially for kids learning about adaptations in class at the moment is learning about the different types of them, whether it's behavioral or it's a structural adaptation or a physiological, so something that's more internal you can't necessarily see as such. But yeah, so with his structure adaptation, that's so cool. I love yeah, that. Yeah. I know. They're amazing. It's just incredible that, you know, when you sort of break down the various components of an animal and you look at, you know, to you and I just looking at him and going, oh, isn't he gorgeous and these pretty spots? But then you sort of look at it, but why has he got those and what's it helping him to actually do? I think 
that's just what fascinates me so much. It's really absolutely, incredible. absolutely. And I love that you also pointed out some can can climb as well because that was actually one of my big questions: was are they mainly on the ground or can they climb and and so forth? So I know that that would have been a question coming through from everybody as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've stolen people's thunder. So no. yeah, look, I, I think eastern koala, I, I believe, are the species that are probably less inclined to be up in trees. I know definitely northern definitely spotted tail and western quoll i've seen i've seen pictures of them up in you know the larger woodland areas down in that southwestern corner so they obviously can whether they're more likely to or not i've, I've sort of read more that it's the northern and the spotted tails that yeah. you will see climbing okay. yeah and you mentioned that they are the second largest carnivorous marsupial is that what you said the carnivorous marsupial so yes can you, like, I've talked so much about marsupials, but can you just define what a marsupial is and maybe tell us a little bit about, like, you don't have to go into this because we were talking about the reproduction and stuff this morning, you know, backwards and forwards, because that's a real big interest for us is how do they reproduce and stuff. So can you talk a little bit about how many babies they have? Do they have a pouch? Yeah. Do they not have a true pouch and so forth? So sure. yeah. perfect. Yeah. So marsupials, as a lot of you would know, are a type of mammal, but it's a mammal. And a lot of us, a lot of us, I think, had always thought that marsupials have a pouch. And interestingly enough, not all marsupials have a true pouch in the sense of the word. I think when we envisage a pouch, we think kangaroo and that big sort of bulbous pocket at the front of mum's tummy. Well, not all marsupials have that truly defined pouch. And quoll, it's really interesting in that the spotted tail quoll are the only quoll species that actually have a pouch that the babies actually once born crawl into and, and obviously suckle from the mum. The other species of quoll have more of a, a fold of skin and so those folds of skin are kind of protecting the teeth so that the babies obviously attach to the teats and in some respects have a form of protection but they don't have that same level of protection that the pouch of the spotted tail quoll would provide. So it would be really interesting to see and I haven't actually seen it but the babies just basically hang off mum's tummy and in time, as they grow, they eventually then climb onto mum's back in the other species of quoll. So basically gestation of a quoll, I think for all species, is, is a very similar period. It's around that 21-day mark. And then the babies first detach from the teat, I believe, between about 35 and about 49 days and then are fully weaned at 90, oh, sorry, no, then they fully weaned, I think, at 96 days and then basically completely mature by about 12 months. So it's really interesting. Basically, by the time we got Quinn, he was around four weeks weaned and he was just, oh, he was about five months old from the time that he was obviously born and and popped into mum's couch to the time that he was actually weaned. It was around five months old. So it's a really interesting process and, and those times do vary slightly amongst the species of quoll, but the interestingly the gestation period is fairly standard around that 20 weight, 21 day period. 
a very quick announcement to make that I'm so excited. Our home education virtual portal is up and running and you can visit that at www.australianwildlifeeducation.com and if you are a parent or you know other parents who have children ages 4 to 12, this one is specifically for them and they get to learn more about Australian wildlife. As I said, marsupials as a whole, I think there's perhaps just a little bit of that misconception that all marsupials have that pouch. So it's an interesting little fact to know. And But, yeah, interestingly, the spotted tail do have a proper pouch. And sorry, I can't remember the mm. second part of that no, question. No, you, uh, you know what, I, I actually can't remember either. But what I do have a question here is, so the spotted tail quoll has the true pouch. How many babies at one time oh, can that, spotted, that's spotted tail quoll? Yes. Would so, it be interesting, though, to know the difference, like with the pouch, do they have more or less? And then and then I've got a question coming off this. And then the okay. other ones, how many do they have just hanging? So, yeah. So all species of quoll have between four and six teats, I believe. However, some species of quoll, and it's more common in the smaller species, can actually give birth to multiple babies. So, you know, I've read there's been instances of 20-plus babies born, but only if they've only got six teats, only six have the opportunity to survive. So for a first-time breeder, Quinn's mum actually had six babies so for, you know, absolutely amazing, something really, really right there. And, and obviously they were given all the, you know, a great diet and the, you know, their environment and that partnership between mum and dad was obviously spot on. I think five is generally the average number of young that a spotted tail quoll will have. Now, I don't know, Jodie, I'm going to throw a question back at you because this, this one really stumped me. Yep. I've always referred to young quoll as Joey or joeys but i've read them as pups and i actually don't know what the correct term is i've read both i've always personally called them joey being a baby marsupial is a joey but i've read in numerous texts over the last little bit calling them pups and yeah i've actually never heard of the term pups before but I don't work with quolls as much, so you'd probably come up with it a bit more. But, yeah, joeys, or the, I sort of describe the little babies as little neonates. Neonates, and, yes. And, uh, yeah, so it's interesting because I think when we look at a quoll or we we kind of put them in the category of a placental mammal, I think, because it looks a bit like a cat, really, especially yes. from a distance. Um, exactly. So, yeah, maybe it's just gotten the term from something similar to that or pups. Yeah, yeah. yeah. perhaps. It's, yeah. it's exactly right because to look at them, I mean, they're an amazing animal to look at. I kind of refer to them as a bit of a cross between like a ferret because mm. the way they've got quite reduced limbs, they haven't got big, long limbs and they kind of lope. And to me, it looks a bit like a ferret and a ferret's obviously a true placental mammal. <laughs> So it's, yeah, it is. It's quite interesting just how they've evolved to move and, and within the landscape where they're found. But, yeah, maybe pup has evolved because they look a bit yeah. cat or dog-like or 
Yeah, I don't oh, that's, it's, it's an interesting question. It's something that we can definitely find out. But I think it's important that exactly like what you said, right then and there, we have just determined that having a pouch does not define a marsupial mammal. And that is a marsupial mammal is defined by the short gestation, so short pregnancy. And then the babies or the neonates are actually born so underdeveloped, underdeveloped. that even their back legs kind of like look like little buds, but it all depends on the species. And but the front calls, but my big question, I actually don't know the answer to it. I don't know if, if you do, Sarah, but so with the tiger quoll, because they've got more of that protection with the true pouch, and then the other quolls don't, is it every case for the tiger quoll to have six babies, or are they more like two or three babies at one time, or neonates at one time, or because they're yeah. more in that protected mode? Yeah, on from what I've read, and again, I don't have experience breeding them, so I don't have personal observations to go by, but from the literature that I've read, they average five okay. most of the time. So survival sort of to out of pouch and weaned are on average, I believe, five. But I, I mean, Quinn was living proof that six, <laughs> you know, they, they've got six teats of spotted tailpole. So if conditions are right and you know, the babies are strong and healthy, that six can survive mm. during a pregnancy. So, mm. yeah. I love putting this to the kids when I'm sure you ask the same similar question, but when you're at school or you're talking about reproduction and like whether it's a frog or it's a lizard or it's a, you know, anything, when it gives you a little bit of an idea of how many eggs something is laid or how many babies something has as to the likelihood of probably just one surviving, to be honest. So with a crocodile, you know, they might lay 50 eggs. However, around about one will, of that will reach five years of age. So with a quoll, do they have some, I mean, if they could have up to 20 and it is the survival of the fittest of, of getting to those six teats, that therefore it tells me that they need to have more babies to up the odds of the likelihood of six or, or even five attaching and then yes. becoming an adult. So, like, when you think of the quoll running around with babies hanging off <laughs> or even on the back, what is the likelihood of those babies becoming the adult? I actually, it's a, it's a brilliant question. And to be honest, I don't know what the survival rate out in the wild actually is. And look, my gut feeling is that in time, that survival rate has probably changed significantly with changing of landscapes, changing of, you know, habitat use change, habitat fragmentation change with the, you know, the introduction of our feral predators, not only preying on quoll, but competing for the food source. Yeah. So I would imagine the likelihood of survival in the wild now has changed considerably from what it might have even been 30, 40 years ago. And it is, I, look, I'm exactly like you, I find that whole reproductive yeah. strategy of animals just so incredibly fascinating, you know, the whole produce lots and lots of small, little, undeveloped young versus producing a small number of large, well-developed young mm. and looking at the survival rates and changes in time over those different species are find it absolutely yeah me too me too i could geek out on all of that all the time <laughs> so, so how old do quolls live for by the way yeah good question so um this varies a lot so the smaller the species of quoll the lesser life longevity is so for if you're looking at the northern quoll those poor little darlings the poor male maybe survives the breeding season so he will mate yeah. and generally pass so 
Yeah, it's incredible. At best, they might survive two years, the male quolls of the northern species. Spotted tail quoll, again, depending on the literature you read, on average around three to four, three to five years in the wild. But there's certainly records in captivity living six to seven. I think actually in discussions with you, you might have mentioned somebody that had quite a long-lived quoll. I've actually... I think there's some quolls down at Halls Gap Zoo that are around that seven years of age too. So I'm hoping that that's the case. I'll be devastated when the day comes that our beautiful queen reaches of age. But certainly in the smaller species, they've got a really short longevity. Yeah, right. It's amazing. It is amazing. uh, It really is. And there's so much about all of our Australian wildlife that we could just share for years and years and years about, and we probably still wouldn't even just hit the surface. So I love all that too. But we we mentioned earlier he was a carnivore. So he was a carnivorous marsupial mammal. So tell us a little bit about that. What does carnivore mean and what's his favourite food um, that you give him? But also what do they find in the wild? In the wild, yeah, great question. So carnivores are meat-eating animals. So being a carnivorous marsupial, they specialise obviously in meat. So in the wild, these guys, and, and it's a little bit different actually the different species. So we'll start with the spotted tail quoll and then I'll sort of talk a little bit about the other species. So being the largest of the quoll species, these guys specialise on feeding on mid-sized mammals. So around, I believe, the 50 to 500 gram mark, or sorry, 50 to 5 kilogram mark of animals. So they can actually take down a pretty big prey item. So if you're looking at a male quoll that can get up to about 7 kilos, he can actually take down a wallaby. Now, it would he'd probably struggle a little bit with a really strong, healthy wallaby. It'd probably have to be one that was of age or maybe not so healthy, but they're known to take down wallaby. Bandicoots, possum would be one of their more commonly fed prey item out in the wild. They will take down birds. And again, because they are arboreal, they're quite well known for going up into hollow trees and actually Mm. taking out possums and birds. Eggs, for example, as well. They will eat. uh, These guys probably don't so much feed on a lot of frogs and reptiles. The smaller quoll species certainly do feed on insects and reptiles and frogs. They also feed on small mammals. But interestingly, and I found this really, really interesting, was even though they're a carnivore, some of the smaller species of quoll will eat fruit, which is quite interesting. Yeah, so there's records, I think, of eastern quoll um, actually feeding on fruit, which I didn't actually realise until I was reading a little bit more about quoll. But spotted tail quoll pretty much are the true sense of the word carnivore. And as I said, they do specialise in that mid-sized mammal. In captivity, we try and feed him quite a varied diet. So he gets a mix of um, mice, chicken necks, quail, small birds. They will eat things like pilchards. Again, you know, looking at some of the captive husbandry books for mammals, they do recommend things like pilchards for quoll. So it's kind of mixing it up and kind of trying to replicate as best as possible what he would get in the wild. I mean, obviously I can't feed him possums and things like that, but yeah. And they're quite opportunistic feeders. So, you know, that they would sit and gorge if the opportunity arose because they may not know when their next meal is coming. They also will eat carrion. So they're quite happy to eat an animal that's already died out in the bush. Wow. So there's so, no problems at all. Yeah. And all species of quoll will do that as well, not just the spotted tail quoll. 
Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, so they're, you know, a bit partial to skanky rotten meat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guess, <laughs> I guess, you know, you've got to take the opportunity when something yeah, is presented there. Because, you know, I do that with chocolate all the time. <laughs> <laughs> As we all do in these times of isolation. <laughs> and so being a carnivore, he's got the jaw, the teeth and everything well suited for that kind of lifestyle. Absolutely. So as I said, and I'll get him out in a minute, we'll get a close-up of his head, but you'll see, you'll notice his big, buffy head. And as I mentioned, so something I haven't touched on is that quolls are part of the Dasyurid family. So the Dasyurids are very typical carnivorous marsupials, and his close relative would be, or would have been, the thylacine. So the Tasmanian tiger would have been a very close relative to the quoll. Tassie devils are very closely related. And, you know, you look at the shape of a devil with a quoll, and there's so many similarities, those big, chunky heads, and, you know, the jaw strength of some of these animals. I love the word formidable. Can I just say that? <laughs> I'm just doing a real good Steve Bachel. <laughs> that's a zoologist coming out in you now. <laughs> I just think that's the best word in the world, so I'm going to throw it in there. <laughs> but, I mean, they are. They've got deadly jaws. And I think the Dassey Urids have three sets of incisors, top and bottom, approximately, but then they've got those really well-defined incisors that are really suited to the, a carnivorous lifestyle. So, you know, the chomping powerful and then shearing back teeth to kind of rip prey. So, yeah, you kind of wouldn't want to corner a quoll, I don't think. I mean, in the wild, I mean, I love Tim Faulkner saying they're baby-faced assassins because they just are the cutest. They've got the most sweetest, you know, butter wouldn't melt in your mouth face. And it, But I think in the wild, they're quite a shy but curious animal. So Tassie devils, I believe, I mean, you, you see footage of them just absolutely tearing each other apart and the territorial behaviors of devils these guys too just a couple of little fun facts i thought i might add while we're talking about it is they are solitary so you won't really see groups of quoll together so you'll see a male and a female male during the mating season which is kind of coming into now so may through to july you will see pairs but what I find really interesting about quoll is their home ranges. They've got huge territories, particularly the males. So, you know, they can have hundreds of acres of their territory and the males can really travel kilometres in a night, you know, looking for a partner during that mating season. An ultra cool fact about quoll is their toileting behaviour. So oh, you probably know. <laughs> Love a good poo story. But these guys actually have shared latrines. So a latrine is basically a toilet. And what they do is they tend to use one spot to go to the toilet over and over again. And, you know, there's talk about that being a bit of a territorial thing. So it's kind of like they're marking their territory. And I keep hoping that that's going to actually happen for Quinn because I would just make cleaning his aviary so good. <laughs> but he kind of hasn't quite got the idea of a latrine yet. <laughs> Hopefully that comes. The it kind of goes near the door a fair bit, which, you know, not ideal. But, yeah, in the wild they quite often use creek lines or just the rocky outcrops of their territory to, you know, have little common toilet area. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. really interesting. 
I, Sorry, I, I've gone from teeth to toilets. That's... I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, hey, look, look, we've got to got to go all the way over here. But coming back to teeth, don't you have something to share with us in regards to the sound? Yes, you have, definitely. Do you have that? Yeah, let's have a look and then we'll show him. Sorry, oh, yeah, I this is some... Oh, if I shared that actually, sorry, I don't think I did. I'll just put that down again. Sorry, I'll just get up with technology. This is some footage that I took last night of Quinn feeding and I'm not sure if that's actually going to play. With a bit of luck, it will actually. Does that come up at your end? Yeah. Okay. So can you hear that? Not quite. Okay, I'll see if I can... See if the volume, put the um, the little volume thing. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear it. Yeah, I can send this to you anyway later if you like, if you wanted to put that up in the comments. But So that was Quinn feeding last night on a mouse and you could see his teeth and yeah. the shape and the sharpness of those teeth, but you can hear the bones crunching. And the first time I did that, a part of, you know, it's a bit gross, but... It's, it just shows the power of those jaw muscles. And you think, I mean, that was just a little mouse. Yeah. You imagine him grabbing and you can see his hands holding onto his food like you or, or I would, holding onto that food. And you can imagine like a possum or a bird or something a little bit more substantial and, and the larger bones actually being powered down by those really strong jaws. It's absolutely amazing. But I can certainly send that to you. Oh, um, I, yes, yeah, do. And I'll put it in the comments just so then everyone can have a, a listen to that. So they actually eat all the bones and everything. So they need to crunch that down and do that good job for then digestion to occur. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of important in captivity that we're not just feeding them mm. bits of raw meat, you know, like as in, sorry, not raw meat, but without the bone. Mm. It's really important for them to get the whole animal, you absolutely. know, for for their teeth health as you know well as all their digestive health and everything yeah well. yeah like reptiles in, in a lot of respects mm. but what i thought i'll do if it's yes. okay is i'll actually i'll pull him out again yep. so i'm just going to keep him in his pouch just for now right at the very end when we're winding up we'll try getting him fully out so that everyone uh, awesome. can see the full body yes i'll put um, you on speaker view so i'll just mute myself so you can just be seen okay so queenie boy there he is. So, I mean, there's how's that for a baby-faced assassin, if you've ever seen one? Like he's, you can see that amazing, I'll try and bring him a little bit closer, that wet, pink, wet nose. You can see him using his nostrils, he's smelling everything. I wonder if he'll give us a nice big gaping yawn that's very stereotypical of a call. He's looking a bit sleepy still. But you can see those massively long whiskers that I was talking about. So these guys do very much go by, by feel. So I guess when you're hunting at night, that sense of smell, reasonable sense of eyesight, the whiskers. And when he's, when he's out searching his environment at night, his head's up all the time. He'll stand up on his back legs and he's sniffing the air. I mean, he's really just looking super into it right now. He just wants to kill him and go back to sleep. But yeah, they're really interesting that they've got such a well-defined sense of smell. Give us a yawn, buddy. <laughs> no, I just want to kill it. What I'll do right at the end, Jody, I'll try and get him fully out so that everyone can see just 
his body size. So at the moment, I actually weighed him a couple of days ago. Last time I weighed him, he was sitting at around 1.8 kilos. So these guys fully grown, average around three and a half kilos for a male. Females are quite a bit smaller, but as I said, they can get up to seven kilos. Mm. He's just topped three kilos now. So he's kind of around that middle weight range. It'll be very interesting how much bigger he does get. I'm kind of hoping not too much bigger because <laughs> holding him now in his pet pack, like he's a decent size. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, I'm very, very blessed. He still lets me go in and pick him up out of his aviary and pop him into a pouch, whereas can, I kind of can't get my head around trying to do that with a seven kilogram. Oh, my goodness, that's <laughs> very massive. <laughs> carnivorous yeah no <laughs> um and what does his fur feel like is he soft or is it that straw kind of fit? that's a really good question it's actually quite coarse so i mean we got him six months ago so we've had him for nearly six months and it possibly has gotten slightly coarser over time what is really interesting is the, the texture and the oiliness of his coat. So a few people had said to me that they actually, I think that's mainly in the males, and I'm assuming it's very much to do with the mating season is they get this sort of a, a bit of an oil slick. Maybe it's a bit like the cool dude, like slick the hair back. Absolutely. You've got to dress up for the ladies. You've got to do it done. But the really interesting thing is his smell. So he actually is giving off, I'm assuming they're a pheromone of some type and, you know, we see him prowling around his enclosure at night and even during the day now and he, he kind of rubs his body up against the logs but I can smell him when I bring him inside now and he's curled up during the day in, in his pouch. odour of him has become really, really quite strong over the last couple of months and, again, I'm assuming as he's matured, and as it's getting close to to his breeding mm. season, it's probably just him exuding all his masculinity and testosterone. And yeah, is it is it like a um uh, like a bo smell or a musky oh, smell? It's or not, what, it's, what? Yeah, no, it's not an offensive, really bad bo. It's kind of that musky. What can I put it? Yeah, it's just a really sort of musky, woody odor yeah it's not I wouldn't say it's offensive that oh my gosh get that thing outside but it's just something I've noticed over time it has gotten quite strong and it'll be interesting come July August when I'm assuming the testosterone levels probably diminish a little bit I mean we don't have a female so unfortunately buddy you're not going to get to make this season but um you know it'll be interesting to see just his behavioral changes and whether the oiliness of his coat perhaps does diminish a little bit and whether just this odour and the pheromones that he's obviously excreting do diminish over time. Yeah, it'll be quite interesting to notice. But Yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's so cool. My goodness, I have learnt so much about koals. You, <laughs> uh, I bet you all the students that you get to take, you know, Quinn into the classroom and have that up-close um, experience and a chat and that connection is absolute privilege. So it has been a privilege to have you on today. So thank you so awesome. much. And thank I would love so to have much. one look at him, please. Yeah, let's try and get him out. I'll just bring my try anything once, hey? Yeah. yeah I'm going to actually 
I'll fully get him out of his pouch and I'll try and hold him up so everyone can see that sort of size of his body and the length mm-hmm. of his tail and actually see his true spots on his tail. Amazing. So you'll notice on. a few people probably notice that he's in a harness at the moment. Obviously, that's not something you'd see in the wild, but I have harness trained him just to enable me to do this safely so that if he did happen to try and jump out or something like that, I've got a little bit more control. So here's Quinn and you'll notice his amazing spots on his body and you can see, as I said, one of the defining features of a spotted tail collar, those spots all the way down his tail and he's getting a little bit wriggly now. Good boy, darling. Oh, I just thought of something. Oh, one really cool thing just before I put him away and he may even do it if he gets a little bit grumpy with me. Can you see that his whiskers have really flared up? So that's him on alert. So one, in terms of body language, once those whiskers flare up like that, you're like, ooh, you're very alert. The other thing he'll do if he's getting a little bit grumpy is his tail hairs will stand like they'll electrify. I might just pop him away, Joey. He's just mm. getting a little bit. Yeah. So so his whiskers are usually like to his his face, like, yeah, when he's really relaxed, they'll just kind of sit back there. And then when he's on alert, and I assume when he's hunting, they'd stand out. And so when I got him out then, he was pretty relaxed, but then he was kind of, he could probably maybe see himself or, you know, could hear us talking and they really shut out. So I knew wow. he's, he's really alert. But when he's a bit grumpy or he's a bit in shock or a bit frightened, they, their tail fur, which is really, it's very similar to like a dog's tail in the sense of the hairs are all nicely elongated down the tail. When he's really frightened or perhaps in an aggressive mode, I assume it would happen just prior at a territorial fight or a fight over mates, the hairs just electrify. So it almost looks like he's grabbed tons of electric wire and the wow. hairs are like, oh. And if that happens and I've got him, it's like, right, okay, look out, just pop him back into his, thankfully it hasn't happened for quite a while. I wouldn't want to deal with that. (laughs) No, but it is, it's really interesting. If I've been in the aviary with him, for example, and one of the other animals in another aviary has done something and he's a bit like, oh, what was that? It's really interesting to see those tail hairs just suddenly stand on edge and and his behaviour just changes automatically, goes into real stealth alert mode and, yeah, it's quite fascinating. That is cool. I love that. What an amazing <laughs> adaptation. Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to do some extra little bit of reading and because I, I used to work with quolls back going like 15 years ago and um, oh, wow. we, we raised one at one of the wildlife parks that we were that I was working at and so that was really exciting. But I haven't, that's been 15 years since I've had anything to do with quolls. So I'm actually going to go to my bookshelf and I'm going to read some more and learn a little bit more tonight thanks to you, Sarah. Oh. So thank you so much uh, for coming on, for allowing us the privilege of meeting Quinn and yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone wants to get in touch with Sarah and they live around the Mildura area, you also go over the border into New South Wales as well. That's correct, yeah. So I'm licensed to go and visit southwestern New South Wales. So amazing. Oh, I would love to have Quinn come into my classroom and visit the kids. (laughs) But thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the rest of well, it's the weekend now, so I hope you enjoy the weekend. And I'm sure Quinn's getting ready to. You know, it's, it's probably nearly dinner time and as a wildlife 
educator, we have our own private zoos, so we need to, to go and feed all of our night animals. So I'm going to say goodbyes and thank you. And, and I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions from the kids soon. So if I need help with anything, I'll definitely contact you. But otherwise, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you thank so you, much thank for having you. me on. Thanks, guys. See you soon. How amazing was that chat? Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming to have a wild chat with us and with beautiful Quinn. He is absolutely gorgeous. So thank you for sharing him with us. If you would like to go and check out what Quinn actually looks like and a little bit more detail on what Sarah shared with us, you can go and see that interview over on our YouTube channel. And that tag is Australian Wildlife Education. You can see all the details there. But otherwise, I think what the most important thing for us to remember is everything starts at home. So what can you do at home to start helping our environment to not only recover, but then to sustain it over time? So think about those things that you could do. But otherwise, guys, I will see you next week with the next Wild Chat.